Well, if I could summarize for you uh, the first two chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes, um, it would be this way. You see that smoke? That is life. He says vanity, seeking after the wind. It's the smoke that was gone and or here and gone in just an instant. That word that's repeated over and over and over and over again. Vanity of vanities. Meaninglessness, if you have the NIV. It literally means smoke or wind or, or nothingness. And so the preacher, uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes says that is what life is. It's there for an instant. It's gone. And it's just smoke that fades away. Here for a moment. We all saw it. It was there for just a second. Maybe you missed it. It was there for such a short time. And then it's gone. Smoke is here for a moment, and then it disappears. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Meaninglessness, meaninglessness. Everything is meaningless. You might as well chase after the wind. It's like trying, life is like trying to grab after that smoke or to catch the wind. It just slips through our fingers. There's nothing that we can hold on to. Is anything really worth anything? That's the big question of Ecclesiastes. I recently saw an article on Christianity Christianity Today's website called The Gospel of Gatsby and Draper. And as a big Mad Men fan and having actually just read and seen the film of The Great Gatsby, I was instantly intrigued just by the title of the article. But what really drew me in actually was not the title of the article, but the subtitle. So the article was The Gospel of Gatsby and Draper, and the subtitle was What if the self-made man wakes up one day and hates himself? What if the self-made man wakes up one day and hates himself? And the article compares these two men, Jay Gatsby and Don Draper, who both come from a dark path. Both are self-made. They're powerful, successful, attractive, rich. They've got everything. And then the authors write, we love this kind of thing, the story of a person who comes from nothing. It tells us that anyone from anywhere can make his mark on the American landscape and that anyone can change the world. But what's it like on the other end? What happens if you spend your existence making yourself only to realize your life, that you hate everything in your life, that you hate everything about it, everyone in it, that the position you are in embodies everything that you hate? Do you want to be the self that you have made? Do you want to be the self that you have made? And if you know the characters, these fictional characters of Jay Gatsby or Don Draper, you know that they would cry out right along with Ecclesiastes, so I hated life because of what is done under the sun is grievous to me, and all is vanity, a striving after the wind. Now, for most of us here this morning, we aren't in the place of Jay Gatsby or Don Draper, but you don't have to be in order to ask the question, is anything really worth anything? And whether you're this morning and you're in high school with all the pressures of homeschool or of homework and, and relationships and, and what are you going to do afterwards once you've graduated or, or maybe you're about to retire, you're on the other side and you're wondering, are all these years of work, were they worth it? What was it really all about? Or maybe you're single and, and hoping to be married, but it just seems like relationship after relationship is a dead end. It's, it's let you down. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're, you're unemployed or you're underemployed or you're in a job that you just hate, or, or maybe on the other side of it, maybe you're in a job that you love, and, and it's your dream job, but you have this nagging sense that this just, it's too good. It can't last forever. When is this going to end? 
Or maybe you're a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home dad, and you just day after day wonder, was this really worth it? Is this what, what I spent all those years preparing for a career? Is this, what I, is this really meaningful? Is anything worth anything? I think we all feel that sometimes, don't we? I mean, you kind of go through this cycle. You live, you breathe, you do laundry, you mow the lawn, you have the same arguments— You go to bed, you wake up, and you do it the same thing again and again and again. You face the same temptations, the same struggles, the same problems of your character. They just keep coming back and back. The same ugly news stories. And then our lives pass away, and the next generation goes through the whole thing of laundry and mowing the lawn, and it just keeps cycling through. Is anything really worth anything? We're not the first people to ask this question. In fact, the entire book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible is written to address this question. And as you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, you kind of are reading from the lens of an old man who is looking back on life with sort of a bleak pessimism, who looks back with not a grin, but a groan. And many believe uh, that King Solomon wrote this book, but the author doesn't tell us. Um, At the very least, it seems like it's written from Solomon's perspective, but the author only reveals himself as the preacher. And so that's what we're going to call him this morning. And whether Solomon wrote this or someone wrote this about Solomon from his perspective, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that this wise teacher who had absolutely everything at the end of his life begins to ponder, what was it all for? Was it really worth anything? And as we look at Ecclesiastes, first we see that life under the sun is vanity. And that little phrase, under the sun, occurs 29 times in Ecclesiastes. And it refers to the pattern of the way things work in life. It's just the way that things work on planet Earth. So whenever you see that phrase over and over again, under the sun, you just think of this is all of life under the sun, all of life on planet Earth, all the meaninglessness, all the, the regularity, all of the cycles that happen under Earth. And if you'd like to follow along with me again, um, it's on page 553 in the Pew Bibles, those black Pew Bibles there. And we're going to be looking primarily merely at chapters 1 and 2 this morning. And if you notice in verse 1 what the author says, he says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. And that little word vanity occurs 37 times. It's the major theme of the book over and over again. The NIV translates it as meaningless. The message translates it as smoke. It's the Hebrew word havel, which literally means breath or vapor or smoke. Havel is something that makes promises it can't keep. Ultimately, it's something that's empty. And notice how the preacher poetically describes vanity in chapter 1. In verses 3 and 4, you see that people work hard. Generation after generation comes and goes. They're trying to make their mark. But what does it say? The earth remains the same. It just stays the same. Generation after generation are working hard, but nothing changes. And then in verses 5, 6, and 7, you get these poetic images of nature. The sun, the wind, the rivers, they all follow the same pattern that they always have. Nothing ever changes. The sun always rises and it always sets. The wind always blows. The oceans are being fed by these streams and they never get full. It's just the same thing over and over again. No progress. This is the same cycle over and over and over again. And then in verse 10, 8 and 10, you see that people are never satisfied. And they, they never have been. They always want to hear something new. It says the ear is never satisfied with the ear, uh, hearing. The eye is never satisfied with seeing. We always are craving for something new, for something novel. But it's all been done before, right? Everything is derivative. 
And, and if you're in what sociologist uh, Richard Florida calls the creative class, who, whose job is to create meaningful new forms, you feel this all the time, right? This pressure of everything being derivative. According to, to Florida, he says, the creative class is composed of scientists, engineers, university professors, poets, architects. It includes people in design, education, arts, music, entertainment, whose function is to create new ideas, new technology, or creative content. And if this is where you live, if this is the profession that you are in, you know that everybody wants to be original. And there's a constant pressure to be innovative, to come up with something new. But the thing is, even that drive to be original isn't original. Everybody wants to be original. And you feel that pressure that everything is derivative. Nothing's really new. Everything's dependent on something else. But the good news is this, that if you do do something truly unique and creative, that that everyone will remember it forever, right? Wrong. I mean, look at verse 11. He says, there's no remembrance of former things. So even if you happen to pull off some incredibly amazing thing that's new, that's never been done, never been seen before, there's no remembrance of former things. Generations are going to go and it's going to be forgotten. There will be no remembrance of latter things yet among any of those who come after. For example, uh, Malcolm McLean. You guys all know Malcolm McLean, right? Nobody knows Malcolm McLean. Okay, well, of course, nobody knows Malcolm McLean, although he literally revolutionized world trade and shipping in 1956 by introducing the metal, standardized metal cargo container. You see these all the time on, on trucks, on ships. It changed the world more than any sort of trade agreement, NAFTA, any of that. He revolutionized the way that international trade works. And none of us have ever heard of him. No one will ever remember. I mean, he left an incredible mark on commerce, not just in the United States, across the world. Malcolm McLean. I read an article about him, and I had to look up his name when I was writing the message because I had already forgotten. I kind of remembered the story, but I hadn't remembered his name. I mean, this is what we're faced with, right? Even if you do something incredible, you come up with a metal box that revolutionizes shipping. No one's ever heard of you. No one remembers you. And even someone who reads an article about you has to look up your name again when they want to talk about it later. This is life under the sun. It's all vanity. Having introduced the general theme then of vanity in the first 12 chapters of the book, the preacher then gets specific. In chapter 2, he points to four things, four approaches to life that leave us empty. He says, these are four ways that I tried to get meaning in life, and none of them worked. So let's take a look at them. First, uh, in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 2, you see that first its pleasure leaves you empty. He says, I said to my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, all this was vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. And also, if you go down a little bit further to verse 8, he says, I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight, concubines, the delight of sons of man. So he says, even down in verse 8, he's saying, I had as much music, I had the best innovative music. And if you're really into music, I mean, music can be such a transcendent experience. He said, I had all the best music. I had all the, all the sex, all the men and women that I, I could want, he says. And he says, there's nothing to be gained under the sun. It's all empty. So he's tried this hedonistic approach to life, and he found it empty, meaningless. Hedonism often works in the short run. I don't want us to hear hear the preacher say that there wasn't some times that were great. But in the end, he says, in the long run, it left me empty. Pleasure will leave you empty. The morning after you've had a little too much to drink, 
the regret following those poor choices on the internet, the feeling of emptiness, of cheapness, of, of hooking up with that guy after the concert, the indigestion that comes through from one too many trips to the buffet, we, and yet we all go back, right? We all try to go back to these things to get a little bit more pleasure, and they always leave us empty. So he says, pleasure left me empty. Next, in verses 4 through 11, he says, here we see second, that success and wealth will also leave you empty. If in verses 1 through 3, he was taking a hedonistic approach to life, here in these verses, it's more of a materialistic approach, a status approach. He says, I made for myself great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself great gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. And I made for myself pools from which the water, the forest, or the growing trees. And I bought male slaves and female slaves. And I had slaves who were born in my house in great possession of herds and flocks, more than anyone who had been before me in Jerusalem. And I had also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. He's got everything. He's amassed a great amount of wealth. He's been incredibly successful. And he says, it still left me empty. So success and wealth, when we pursue that, we try to find meaning in the right answers to the questions, what's your title? What's your address? Where do you live? What kind of car do you drive? Who do you know? Where have you been published? How much money do you have? And also, I think depending on your social circle, the right answer to those questions isn't necessarily bigger and better. It can also sometimes mean smaller and cheaper. I sometimes call this the, the subtle pride of, of materialism, like thrifty materialism. I think, you know, because I am like, I am not accumulating that much, but sometimes I like to talk about how, well, you know, I don't really care much about those material things, or I got a really great deal on this stuff. But the, the thing is, if material stuff didn't matter to us, we wouldn't still be talking about it all the time, right? We'd be talking about other things. So materialism doesn't always manifest itself in just wanting to have the, the best car and the best house. Sometimes it can mean, uh, you know, if you're a hipster down in Westport, having the oldest clothes and the most obscure beat-up car, you know, whatever it is. Um, it's building your identity around what you have. But whether it's the flashy materialism, sort of the East or the West Coast, or kind of this, this subtle materialism of the Midwest— The preacher says in the end, success and wealth and status, they leave you empty. So on to another one. Third, wisdom also leaves you empty. Verses 12 through 16. So having tried pleasure, success, and wealth and found them wanting, now the preacher turns to wisdom, to intellectualism. Look at verse 12 in chapter 2. He says, so I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can a man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. And then I saw that more gain of wisdom than in folly, and that there's more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has the eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. He says, it's better to be a wise person, but then I realized, you know what? The same thing happens to both the wise and the fool. Again, we see this pesky problem of being derivative. He says there's this frustration that real wisdom and intellectualism leave us empty. They don't offer us a better life. And at the end, the wise and the fool, they both die. Whether you're Einstein or Uncle Rico, you end up dead. I mean, what's the gain? This is what he's saying. You can spend your whole life devoted to learning. And, you know, at the end of it, what's, what's the difference? You, you end up dead. Maybe some of you are younger might have not seen Napoleon Dynamite. This guy is a real... Uh, idiot in the movie. But what, no matter what side of that spectrum you're on, whether you're the wisest, most intellectual person, or you're the biggest goofball idiot, you end up dead in the end. So what's the use of trying to gain all this intellect when 
the fate of the fool and the wise are the same. So that wasn't a good path. Fourth, work leaves you empty. You see this in verses 18 through 23. He says, So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toils of my labor under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is also vanity and a great evil. What has a man from the toil and striving of his heart with which he toils beneath the sun? He says, I've worked so hard at all this, and and what happens at the end? I've devoted my life to this career, and then it's just handed over to someone who didn't work for it at all. It, It doesn't help me in the end. You see, in the end, work and toil cannot provide meaning. In fact, in best, they can be a distraction. Um, watch this, this clip. I think this captures it so well. Fear is <laughs> what drives me. That, that um, if I stop working, you know, work is a wonderful distraction. And you get up in the morning and you think, can I get this actor? And what will I do with this costume and this location? The cameraman, I have to light it this way. The script doesn't work. And many trivial problems that you solve. And if you don't solve them, nothing terrible happens to you. Just you have a bad movie, but nothing terrible happens. But if you don't have those problems, you sit home with nothing to do, and you start to think about real problems. You start to think about, gee, I'm getting older. I could get Alzheimer's, I could get cancer, I could, my heart, how much longer can my heart go? What, what am I doing here? You know, life is short, it's terrible, it's meaningless. And you start to get, and then fortunately, when you work, that all gets put away. And so I work all the time out of desperation, out of fear to, you know, I finish a project and I don't want time off. I want to go right into the next one so I don't have time to sit in a chair and, and think about what a terrible situation all human beings are in. I mean, I think Woody Allen would love Ecclesiastes. I don't know if he's read it, but I mean, I think in many ways he could have written it. If you've seen Woody Allen films, he embodies so much of the view of so much of the book of Ecclesiastes, this meaninglessness, this frustration, this distraction um, that we all face. And you see the desperation. I work out of desperation. It's a distraction. It can't provide meaning. But maybe it can distract us for a little while. He says, what am I doing? Life is terrible. It's short. It's meaningless. I work all the time out of desperation and fear. He isn't able to find meaning in work, but it does serve as a distraction from the meaninglessness of life. And the author says, you know, I've done all this work. I've done all these things. And yet, when I die, it just goes to someone else. There's no meaning there, ultimately. So if pleasure, if wealth and success, if wisdom, if work, if they all leave us empty, if they can't fill us up, the question is, is, can anything fill us up? If if life truly is vanity, why do we long for more? If life really is meaningless, why do we long for meaning? We all live as if there was meaning. We crave it. And I think we get a hint at why later on in the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 3. The author says that eternity has been placed in our hearts. He says there's this gnawing voice in us that says we were made for more than this. And it's a voice that we just can't shut up. We can't silence it. You see, it is true that life under the sun is vanity and meaninglessness unless, 
unless there is one over the sun. Life under the sun is vanity. It is meaningless unless there is one over the sun. That phrase that he uses 29 times, under the sun, it implies that there is something over the sun, something bigger, something beyond, something unseen. Life is meaningless unless God is real. You see, without God, nothing lasts. Without God, there's no justice. Without God, ultimately, concepts like beauty and love become incoherent or just self-referential. Matters of opinion. Without God, we are dust and our actions are dust and the world is dust. And if you talk to someone who's really, truly a committed philosophical atheist— they do tell you in the end it really is all vanity. It really is all meaninglessness. That, that at the end, Hitler and Mother Teresa, they both end in nothingness. That when you die, it's over. You go back to being merely dust and that's it. And no one captures better the agony of existence without a judge, without someone to work justice, without someone to give a pronouncement of good or bad than Arthur Miller in his play After the Fall. One of the characters in the play speaks these words. He says, you know, the more and more I think about it. For many years, I looked at life like a case at law, a series of proofs. When I was young, you, when you're young, you prove how brave you are or how smart, and then what a good lover, and then a good father, and finally how wise or powerful or whatever. But underlying it all, I now see there was a presumption that I was moving on an upward path towards some elevation where God knows what I might be justified or even condemned, a verdict anyway. And now I think my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty, no judge in sight, and all that remained was an endless argument with oneself, the pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which is, of course, he says, another way of saying despair. He said he lived his whole life as though there was someone who was going to give an evaluation and say, yes, what you've done is meaningless. Or, or even, he says, to be condemned, to say it, it was, was meaningful, rather, or, or to say that you were wrong or that it was good or that it was bad. And he realized, one day I looked up and the bench was empty. There was no one there to give a judgment. If, if God isn't real, if he doesn't exist, that's the place where we all are. There's no one to say that this was good or bad or meaningful or meaningless. Just the pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench is what we're left with. You see, the only refuge in a meaningless world under the sun is a God who is over the sun. We don't understand all the complexities of time and the injustices around us, the futility of our experience and the inevitability of death, this endless cycle. But at the end of Ecclesiastes, the very two final verses, we find a glimmer of hope amidst all, amidst all the emptiness. We find that everything feels meaningless, but there is hope. Look in the final two verses, chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. At the very end, after he's gone through this whole thing of, of wrestling with the meaninglessness of life, this is what the preacher says. He says, The end of the matter is this. When all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. There is one to whom we must give account. So the author says, fear God and keep his commandments. Every deed of yours and mine, no matter how secret, no matter how hidden, will one day be brought into the light and judged. 
Now, on the one hand, this is incredibly sobering, right? That God sees us, and he sees when we abuse his gifts of the wisdom, the pleasure, success, wealth, all the things he has given, and he sees and he will judge. And this is a sobering reality for every single one of us. But this isn't just sobering. It's also invigorating because it means that what you do matters. It makes a difference whether you're a Hitler or a Mother Teresa. God sees, and do you see how that gives meaning even to the most mundane things in life? This is good news because we've gone from nothing mattering to everything matters now. Because there's one who sees everything. You see, on the one hand, life is absolutely absurd without God, and even with him, we still struggle with a sense of randomness and meaning and the cycleness of existence and evil and all of those things. But with God, even in the absurdity, there's infinite significance that's offered. So how do we navigate life well in light of this? And I think there are three themes that emerge throughout the book of Ecclesiastes that help us to live life well in this way. The first is don't ask empty things to fill you up. Don't ask empty things to fill you up. Remember that pleasure, success, wealth, wisdom, work, they can't fill you up. They are empty in of themselves. I mean, they're good things, but they're empty when it comes to giving you any sort of long-term sense of meaning. In and of themselves, they are not enough. And just, you know, a personal example from my life this week um, of empty things that I tried to fill myself up with. Uh, I was at a lunch meeting uh, at First Watch and uh, was there and thought, you know, I am so hungry and uh, I know I should probably eat something healthy. I just had something unhealthy the other day, and I felt bad the whole day, um, and I should eat something healthy at this lunch. And then the waitress comes out, and she's telling me about this special, and it was sounded incredible. It was this thing. It was uh, two biscuits topped with two pork sausage patties topped with two eggs over easy, smothered in turkey gravy, and it sounded so good until I got about two-thirds of the way through it, and I felt terrible, actually, for the rest of the day. Um, and I mean, I think, you know, not that I was looking to my biscuits and gravy for ultimate meaning, but in the moment, I really was looking for them to kind of be comfort and satisfaction in the middle of the day, a little, a little treat in the middle of the day. And, it, you know, empty things can't fill you up, whether it's biscuits and gravy or the career you've always wanted or marriage or children. Empty things can't fill you up. And what we do is to ourselves all the time We try to ask those things to fill us up. So to live a good and wise life, don't ask empty things to fill you up. Second, enjoy whatever you can under the sun. And this is a huge theme also throughout the entire book of Ecclesiastes. Once you've demoted work and pleasure and sex and all those things, once you've taken those out of the place of being God, after you've taken them out of the place of trying to have them give you ultimate meaning, then you can enjoy them for the good gifts that they are. Eat, drink, and be merry. That idea comes out of the book of Ecclesiastes in 224. It says there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat or drink or have enjoyment. God has given us incredible gifts. Creation is good. So many great gifts that are to be enjoyed. He says this over, you get this in chapter 3 and 5 and 7 and 8 and 9, 11, this theme of eat, drink, enjoy life. One scholar writes, the preacher spends a great deal of time commenting on the twisted realities of a fallen world, but this does not blind him to the beauty of God's world or cause him to despise God's good gifts of human relationships, food, drink, and satisfying work. These two are to be humbly received and enjoyed 
fully as blessings from God. So don't ask these things to fill you up, but enjoy what God has given you. Now is the moment to enjoy life. So as this uh, same scholar, Bruce Walkey continues, he says, when pleasure is pursued as an end in itself, it leads, as the preacher painfully learned, to dissatisfaction and emptiness. But when they are accepted as a gift from God and used responsibly in the fear of God, there is nothing better under the sun. When they're used rightly, there's nothing better under the sun. But how do we walk that balance? How do we work out that balance between enjoying God's good gifts and not asking them to fill us up? I think we get a glimpse again in chapter 11, verse 9, where the preacher says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that all these things will be brought into judgment. Which leads us to the final point. So, so this is what we need to do. Don't ask empty things to fill us up. Enjoy the good gifts that God has given us. And finally, live before the God who sees. That's how we keep from letting those good things become ultimate things. Live before the God who sees. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Live before the God who sees. God is watching us, every one of us. And every secret thing we do will be brought into judgment. Enjoy his gifts, but don't despair. Because if you abuse them, if you try to make them ultimate things, if you try to find ultimate meaning in them, you will end up despairing. So do you live before his eyes? I mean, in the end, we don't really have a choice but to, but do we acknowledge the fact that every action, every decision, every hidden thought, that every one of those things that God sees, that he knows it? And does that thought give you terror or joy? And at one level, fear is the right response. This should be a warning to us to fight sin, to continue to pursue holiness, to live a life worthy of the calling to which we received in Christ. But it's also a great joy. It's also a great joy because what it means is that every part of our life is now meaningful. There's no sort of secular, sacred, secular divide. Everything matters. Everything is holy. From the laundry to the mowing of the lawn to, to leading someone to Christ to anything that you do is now fully meaningful. There's nothing mundane in the universe. If God sees it all, if he brings it all into judgment, then everything matters. Nothing is meaningless. Even that most dead-end, frustrating job even the most hard days as a parent when it seems like nothing matters and that no one cares about what you're doing, God sees, he cares, he knows. Those long moments of taking care of an aging parent with no thanks from them or for anyone else, God sees, he knows, it's meaningful. Because God sees, everything matters. Everything matters. Nothing is meaningless. Ultimately, we can live life with confidence and joy before the God who sees because the God who is over the sun has come under the sun in the person of Jesus. You see, all throughout Ecclesiastes, so much of the preacher's despair is tied to the futility of death, right? Everyone ends up dead. This is the big problem. This is why nothing matters because everyone dies. But what if someone defeated death? You see, the empty tomb of the resurrected Jesus is the ultimate hope for empty lives filled with empty things. The empty tomb of the resurrected Jesus is the ultimate hope 
for empty lives filled with empty things. The death and resurrection of Jesus means that our sins are no longer, are, are finally forgiven, that death and, and judgment are no longer sources of despair for those who are in Christ, who have placed their trust in him, who have given up hope of filling themselves with empty things and have clung to the one who has risen from the dead. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of most people are to be pitied. Paul says, if Christ is only good for this life, if Christ is, hasn't been raised from the dead, then we are fools. We're stuck in the meaninglessness of Ecclesiastes. But he says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits who have fallen asleep. For by a man came death, but by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. And at the end of the chapter, he says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And pay attention to this. He says, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, no longer is anything vanity. No longer is your work in vain. Everything matters now. Because death has been defeated. Jesus has been raised from the dead. The empty tomb is the answer to the empty life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for the resurrection of Jesus. And we gather here this morning because he has been raised from the dead. We don't subscribe to an idea or, or, um, or an empty philosophy, but we subscribe. we're witnesses to an event that happened in history. We're gathered as witnesses to good news. Something's happened. We don't proclaim ourselves. We don't have anything to give, but, but we stand here this morning in witness to the resurrection of Jesus, and we stake our life on it. And so we pray this morning that the resurrection would be what gives us hope in the midst of lives that can seem so empty. Fill us with the one thing that does not leave us empty, the hope of new life in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.